2: Are we going to shake our fists at Stuart, at Slack, and Netflix, and these companies and say, hey, your product is too engaging. Netflix, your shows are so interesting. I want to watch them all the time. Ezra, stop making these podcasts so good that I want to listen to them instead of being with my family. This is ridiculous.
3: Hello and welcome to the Zuckland Show on the Vox Media Podcast Network. My guest today is Nir Eyal. Uh, Nir Eyal is probably best known as the author of a book that became very famous in Silicon Valley, in particular, called "Hooked: How to Create Habit-Forming Products." And "Hooked" is one of these books, very, very influential when it came out. And it, it's really about how to how to create products, how to how to create processes that create habits. It's how to understand the parts of our mental processes that if you put them in the right order or you trigger them in the right order is going to make someone keep coming back and back and back and back to something. And the, the book became very famous and very influential uh, as like everybody was building apps and trying to figure out how to create an engagement loop. And then over time, it also became something people looked back on as part of a rising and problematic approach to user behavior and user manipulation in in the technology industry and so i was it's super interested when al's new book came across my desk uh, which is indistractable how to control your attention and choose your life and this is a book entirely about trying to unhook yourself from these processes how to try to retain control of your attention in a world where everybody's trying to take it from you and it's it was interesting to me to try to think about what was the journey AL himself was going on in this. Did he look back on his old book and regret it? Did he, you know, what had led him to write the book? And so I invited on the show. And this is a pretty interesting conversation. It's contentious for a lot of it. Uh, I would say that I think given the two books, um, AL does not develop as structural a critique of what's been going on around him and in part with him. As I would have thought or preferred, but I think he's got good counterarguments on that. But I appreciated him sort of coming on and discussing that with me and then also talking about some of his uh, approaches to this. I think a lot of things right now do come down to Are do you think this is a problem we can manage through willpower, through setting up our attentional context? Or do you think this is something that requires other solutions? Some people will uh, move there to regulatory solutions. Some people move to cultural solutions, right? It's something that people should be shamed for doing. I think that's a little bit more where where I'm pushing. Um, But I think the the debate we're having in here, um, the discussion we're having in here is one worth having. I think that whether or not you think this can be managed through just kind of changing people's individual practices or whether you, you think the context that is being created for people has become individually unmanageable. It's a really important question going forward. So all this is, my email is Kleinshow at com. Again, Kleinshow at com. Here is Nir Ayal. Nir Ayal, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much, Ezra. Great to be here. So talk to me a bit about the impetus to write this book. You, you wrote Hooked, How to Create Habit-Forming Products. It's this Bible of how to um, get people uh, hooked on your products. I got handed it when I was thinking about starting Vox from all these tech people. <laughs> uh, I didn't think it, it was that relevant to the news, but maybe it was. Um, how do you, how do you go from being the guy who teaches the tech industry how to hook people to try to be the guy who's trying to teach people how to unhook?
2: Yeah, so uh, it's interesting. Somebody once told me that wisdom is found in the apparent contradictions. And so it might seem like there's a contradiction here, but really there's not a dichotomy that you can teach companies how to use these tactics for good, uh, which is what Hooked was always about. It wasn't about uh, teaching Facebook and the gaming companies and YouTube how to use these techniques. They know how to use these techniques. They have well before I wrote Hooked. The idea with Hooked was to democratize these techniques so that all kinds of companies building all kinds of products could build the kind of products and services that people use because they want to, not because they have to. Uh, And that's what's happened in the five years since Hooked has been published. Uh, It's been this this book that all sorts of companies use to build healthy habits uh, from exercise habits, nutrition habits, education habits, enterprise software habits. So that's really how Hooked has been used. Now, the the reason I say there isn't a dichotomy is because I think you can teach people how to build the kind of products that build healthy habits, while also having the insider knowledge to help people understand how to avoid distraction at the hands of some of these products as well. And so that's what Indistractable is about. But that's all to say that at the end of the day, I write books for me and for problems that I am facing. And uh, I very much wrote Indistractable because I found that I was becoming distracted by some of these technologies. I, I remember one day I was with my daughter and we had this afternoon of daddy-daughter time. And uh, I remember uh, we had this book of activities that daddies and daughters could do together. And we were sitting together in her room, and I was look- we were looking through this book. And one of the activities was to ask each other this question, that if you could have any superpower, what superpower would you want? And I wish I could tell you what she said in that moment, but I can't because I was looking at my device and I was distracted. And the next thing I knew, I looked up and she left the room. She got the message that she was less important than my device. And so that's when I realized that, you know, if, if, if I'm struggling with this and I understand how these products are designed to hook us, I wrote the book after all that uh, other people might have this problem as well. And so I wanted to dive into what was going on.
3: I want to push more a bit on that that bigger culture because it doesn't seem to me to be totally fair to say, well, Hooked came out and people only use that book to do good things. It was part of a – I mean it was only part of it. But it's part of a broader culture um, here in Silicon Valley than not only. that got very excited about hijacking people's mental processes to – um, you know, we can argue about the word addiction, but 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 hook them to products. Um, and I, I wonder if that's not something that should be rethought in a in a much bigger way than this. I mean, the idea that well, it's great if some people do it, but not if other people do it. I mean, maybe this just isn't the way people should responsibly be thinking about
2: product development. Well, if you know any any cases of how people have used my book for ill, I'm I'm happy to hear it. I don't I don't know of any of those cases, but uh, I mean I'll, I'll tell you. But, I mean, book, you say
3: in the you say in the beginning of the book that it's, your book is on all kinds of bookcases out here, right? I mean, so clearly
2: it's some of these companies. Yeah, but, but it's, well, let me tell you that the, I'm not sure if you finished Hooked, but the, the case study in the back is of a very carefully selected product. The case study is not about some gaming company. Uh, it's not about some social network. The case study is the Bible app. And I chose that app very specifically for that book. Uh, By the way, there is a a whole section that I call the morality of manipulation, where I address these moral and ethical questions in the book, of course. But it's telling that this app that many people forget is one of the most widely used piece of software in the world. The Bible app uses this very same model. And I put it in, in there very specifically because if you're the kind of person that believes that forming a habit with the Bible is a good thing, that it brings people closer to their faith, that it gives them purpose and meaning, that it gives them solace in life, then you'll be very much for creating a habit around the Bible app. But if you believe that religion causes people to be more divisive and and is not a good thing in the world, then you're not going to like the Bible app. And I think we see something very similar when it comes to this question of of social media or games. It's, for many people, it's a value judgment, but I don't want to make that kind of value judgment because I don't think it's up to me to tell people uh, how to spend their time. You know, what, what is it that makes Candy Crush somehow morally superior to watching a football game on TV? You, you tell me. I think the way I think about it, and this is where my discomfort comes, is that it's right
3: in that term, how to spend their time. I think the experience a lot of people have, and and, and the experience that you share in, in Indistractable, I think, in a pretty compelling way, given your background, is that a lot of us feel that in ways that are hard to articulate, we've lost control over how we spend our time. We look up and we're spending our time in a way we didn't intend to. And stepping back from the question of, do you think you know, this or that app is good— To me, when I look at the the system as a whole, what I see happening is we've developed a lot of cognitive understanding of the way people's minds work, the way um, people's sort of reward systems can be hijacked. That cognitive understanding is filtered into people who have a lot of money to make and design and beta test and advertise products, and that in the arms race between how well our kind of cognitive uh weaknesses are understood and how much power we have over the environment around us, it's just very hard to keep up with a culture of multi-billion dollar companies or smaller companies um, that is constantly sort of like getting ahead of us because they've got people paid to figure out this research. And so like I I hear I hear the point here, but it feels to me that you cannot, you can be reasonably value neutral on the question of how people spend their time without being quite so value neutral on the question of whether or not like this broader trend towards,
2: um, towards these kinds of like looping addictive products is good. Well, let me agree with you and disagree with you here. I would agree with you that uh, helping people do the things they want to do that they do with intent is important. In fact, that's how I define distraction. So if you think about what is the opposite of distraction, the opposite of distraction is not focus, it's traction. In fact, traction and distraction both have the same Latin root, trahare, which means to pull. So traction is any action you take that pulls you towards what you want to do, things you do with intent. Now, what you do with intent is up to you. I'm not going to tell you that my values are better than yours, that uh, Facebook and Candy Crush is somehow morally inferior to watching the news or listening to a podcast or watching a football game on TV. That's up for you to decide. That's based on your values. The opposite of traction is distraction. Anything you do... That is not that act of traction. So the book is really designed to help you do whatever it is that is consistent with your values. And I I, I agree with you that that is an important thing to teach people. And I will tell you, too, that as an industry insider, if we don't have these skills, if we don't know how to become indistractable, no doubt about it, these companies are going to get you. They understand what makes you click and what makes you tick better than you understand yourself. So we have to know these skills. Where I disagree with you is with this term that I wish people would stop using around addiction and hijacking our brains. It is 100% complete rubbish. It is a great story that makes for wonderful headlines and feeds into our negative, negativity bias and our confirmation bias and gives us a wonderful excuse to not do anything about the problem. Because the fact is, anyone who's really built products out there, and I'm telling you this from the in, inside the industry, these techniques that I talk about in Hooked, these behavioral design tactics, they're good. But they're not that good. We are not puppets on a string. People cannot be manipulated to do whatever you want them to do. They understand when a product harms them what most people do. And there's some categories where this doesn't apply. People who are pathologically addicted or children. But the vast majority of us, we either moderate our behavior or we stop using the product altogether. And so the trend I want to perpetuate is to give people the tools to understand how to get the best out of technology without letting it get the best of us. But what we have to stop doing is using this term addiction and hijacking our brain because Ezra, the words we use matter. When we start talking about addiction, like everyone's got it, we're all addicted, this actually makes the problem worse. And it makes it worse because of this phenomenon of learned helplessness. When we tell people that they're powerless, that it's hijacking your brain, that it's addictive, it makes it true. It's called learned helplessness and people give up. They say, oh, I don't have any agency. The algorithms are doing it to me. It's rubbish, it just ain't true. So uh, let me kind of couple the, uh, decouple that into
3: a couple ideas here. So one is the idea of whether or not we should use the term addiction. I, I think there's a good argument, and I take your point here, that, um, that it can go too far. On the other hand, addiction is a spectrum issue. It's a hard one to define. The way you just tried to rule it out is not internally coherent. So, for instance, most people who try heroin don't get addicted. But then
2: we wouldn't say, well, it's rubbish to say heroin is addictive. Most people I never who said drink these alcohol. let be very clear. I never said these things aren't potentially addictive. Ezra, every – Analgesic is potentially addictive. But, but so,
3: but so then, so then we are in a so then we're in a question of when we can use the term addiction, right? And so, if we are, I mean, as I understand it, and I'm doing this a little bit from memory, but mm-hmm. the the general definition of addiction is something people keep doing despite it having negative consequences on their life. It's a, I mean, the American Psychological Association says it's a, it's a complex, multi, um, multi-dimensional right. disorder, but. It seems to me, actually, the addiction is a very helpful concept for a lot of things in our lives. I mean, you know, and it's not just um, tech products. It's things with work. It's things with uh, um, food. I actually, I've seen um, many people say, well, saying these products are addictive is like it's like complaining that, you know, restaurants put all this salt and sugar <laughs> and butter into their food. But, of course, we know that we have a huge obesity crisis because the food industry has gotten really good at hijacking our reward systems and it's very hard to say no it's very hard for me to say no like i've somebody who's struggled with my weight all my life and so i actually the, the way i'd push back on you is this i think it's really important to recognize that we are all deeply susceptible to different forms of addiction um, To greater or lesser degrees, of course, like I'm totally non-addictive to cigarettes, but other people are. Mm -hmm. And to recognize that we don't have as much power and self-control as we like to think that the the myth that often seems to me to be really damaging is the myth that we are in full control of our actions because that makes it really hard for us to realize when we're being um, effectively manipulated. Now, I recognize you don't want to go all the way over to that end, but it seems to me that more often we're all the way over at the other end where we have so much trouble seeing what is happening around us because we're really caught in an incredibly powerful myth of our perfect
2: rationality and responsibility. So the answer to many difficult questions in life is all too often it depends that when we try and answer these questions and we try and think of them as binaries – Right? That's when we get into trouble. That this isn't a debate of good and evil. If you want good and evil, go watch Star Wars. That's not real life. We have to start with the difference between what is addiction and overuse. And for the vast majority of us, what we're talking about is overuse. Addiction is a pathology. It's defined as a persistent compulsive dependency on a behavior or substance that harms the user. It is something that is incredibly hard to stop despite our attempts. That is not the criteria that we're using to talk about, I like something a lot. I, I overuse it sometimes. One thing we share in common, I have also struggled with my weight. I used to be clinically obese at, some point, at one point in my life. I understand what you're talking about, but this is very different from an addiction. And what we do when we talk about these terms, my, my wife got a box from DSW, this shoe seller, that said, danger, highly addictive contents inside. When we use this term so loosely, it becomes meaningless. An addiction is a pathology. And what we need to understand is that addiction requires three things. Nobody ever steps on a heroin needle and becomes an addict. That's not the way it works. It's never been about the substance itself. An addiction requires three things it requires a person with a predilection for addiction, it requires the product. And it requires pain that they are going through that they cannot cope with in a healthier manner. And it's only in the confluence of those three things that actual addiction occurs. Take out one of those three factors and you don't have an addiction. Now, when we pathologize this and make it sound, use this term like these things are addicting us, we are giving these companies more power and control than they deserve, right? There have been studies that found that with alcoholics, the number one criteria of whether someone can recover from an alcoholic addiction is their belief in their own power to do so, even more than the chemical dependency itself. So but by, when you talk Alex, not to say I'm an addict? No, not necessarily. I mean, that seems like the implication so of the argument of here. So lots of people can be addicted to something right? This is, this is where we have to think in the grays here. It's not binary. It's not helpful to think about this in a, in a binary way because lots of products that we use addict someone without addicting everyone. We have a glass of wine with dinner. We're not all alcoholics. Many people have sex. They're not all sex addicts. Many products can be addictive and not addict everyone because, Ezra, any analgesic, literally anything that solves pain is potentially addictive to someone. And of course, if you have a product used by two and a half billion people like Facebook is, somebody is going to get addicted. But we can't keep perpetuating this message to everyone because it makes it true. We are doing what these companies want us to do by telling people they're powerless. It's hijacking your brain. It's addictive. That is bullshit. So I
3: think we're going to disagree on this part, but that's OK. I'm going to move from it. Um, well, because no, no, no. I no. Let's go This is
2: super important, I think, because so, we use this I, Well, actually, so much. the
3: reason I want to push it forward is actually not because um, it's not a good disagreement, but because I think we're just circling the question of the word addiction. Like the, the disagreement I have with you here is that the definition of the word addiction is persistent compulsive use of a substance known by the user to be harmful. I think you're developing uh, definitions here that are more narrow, which is actually reasonable in, in, in some context. But for a lot of people, these things fit the bill. Um, I think a lot of people feel this way uh, about Twitter. But I think a different uh, and a, in some ways a less charged example is that there is a lot of concern that there is some percentage of the population that gets addicted in a way that is clearly bad for their life to massive online multiplayer games. Um, not everybody, uh, just like not everybody gets addicted to alcohol who tries it, or gets addicted to to other drugs who tries them, um, but but some people. And that's why I think it's first important to be able to say, yes, things can be addictive without everybody getting addicted. But two, the, 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 the bridge you're making here that I find unconvincing is this idea that, well, even if it's true that these things can be addictive and in fact are addictive to a bunch of people, we shouldn't say it because saying they're addictive creates a learned helplessness problem and then you can't get out. I mean, that's why I pushed back to say, well, are you really going to say then that all those alcoholics who come out and say... I'm an alcoholic and I'm addicted. Well, now they've developed a learned helplessness problem, which clearly that's not, I mean, most of the, not most of, but many of the major treatment um, modalities there start from recognizing that there is a developed helplessness here. And you have to accept that in order to begin making changes. You have to stop believing that this is all going to be up to your own um, personal, like counter hacking and your own sort of personal efforts to, to change your life that is by accepting That there's something happening that is a little bit outside of your control that you can begin to make the large enough contextual changes in your life to um, gain gain some control on it. So it's that bridge into, well, if we say this, we're helping them. I don't buy that. I don't think that's how anything else in the addiction space works. And I don't think it's how it works here. In some ways, I'm worried that if we don't
2: say it, we are letting them off the hook. Well, we're saying it in a way that we're saying it's doing it to everybody. That's what I think is dangerous. I agree, there are people out there who are addicted to Facebook, just like there are people, I read an article for The Atlantic about how there are people out there, lots of people who are addicted to using Q-tips in their ears. This is not a joke. There are addictions for literally any analgesic, anything that solves pain. I'm not against telling folks that these things are potentially addictive because they certainly are and we do need to be careful. In fact, I wrote an article years ago before this current tech clash that companies in fact have a responsibility to do something for those addicts because they know who they are. But what I think what's happening today is we're calling everything addictive. We're saying this addicts everyone. Be careful. You know, the the article that went viral ironically, technology is hijacking your brain. Not h- h- technology can addict some people, not this nuanced approach. No, no, no. Let's think about this as a binary way. Good versus evil. Big bad tech is doing this to everyone. That's not helpful. I think
3: that's very fair. And I think the point about there needing to be nuanced here is very important. One of the places where the rubber meets the road on this, though, and it, it, it relates to the rest of the book, is whether or not in this context, individual action is as powerful as we want it to be. So I was very excited to to read the book when it came across my desk because it did seem this really interesting, like the guy who wrote Hooked is now sort of turned around on this and is saying, you know, it's time to get out of this. And I think, and we're going to go through it, your book has a lot of sort of wonderful individual advice, but it also has, I think, a pretty deep skepticism of systemic solutions and in some ways is still bought into it. Like I was surprised to see a section extolling the company Slack, which you're extolling them for having an internal work culture that's very protective and, and, and lets people be heard. But that's a company that I think – and I really like a lot of the people there. Stuart Butterfield has been on the show. I think he's um, you know, a really thoughtful guy. But it's pretty clear to me that that company has developed something incredibly, incredibly addictive that has made – or even if you want to take out the word addiction – it has created something incredibly distracting that has allowed work pangs to be in every aspect of our lives. And while there is control you can put under it, like they have been innovators in creating ways to get people to spend more time looking at their phones and, and feeling connected to their workplace in ways that, you know, for all of us who are on Slack can be really frustrating and can – Make it hard to just live a li, live life in the way you want to do it, and so it's funny to me see to see Slack get a positive profile in a book that is all about trying to, to to step back from distraction. In some ways, it felt to me like there was less systemic critique in here than I was expecting, given what a departure it is from the last
2: book. So I, I chose the Slack example very, very intentionally. I knew it would be this lightning rod of company that most people point the finger at and say, that's exactly what's distracting me. That's the problem. It's the technology. And the reason I use the Slack example is because if it really is the technology that's doing it to us, if that's what's distracting us, nobody uses Slack more than people at Slack. So these people should be the most distracted people on earth. How do they get anything done? But as you as you read in the book, is, uh, you know, these people who work at Slack don't have this problem that in fact, because the problem is not about the technology, the technology is the proximate cause. It's not the root cause. The root cause of a workplace that is constantly distracted is that distraction is a symptom of a larger dysfunction. It turns out to be a culture issue. And that's why I highlight Slack because it's a a company that has a fantastic company culture, at least it did when I have the book, you never know what happens uh, after you write the book. But this is a company that has the kind of workplace culture that despite their use of this technology, they don't have the kind of distracted workplace. Why? Because of three things. They have a culture of psychological safety, Two, they give people the opportunity to voice concerns. And three, they have a management team that is itself indistractable, that models these behaviors. In fact, they have on their walls of company headquarters a big pink sign that says, work hard and go home. And everybody from steward on down, the CEO on down, lives out that ethos. They practice this culture of letting people shut down. And so, that is the real problem. The real problem is an environment where people can't talk about these, these problems, can't deal with these cultural issues, uh, just like they can't talk about all kinds of other problems. So it turns out that in an organization that has a problem with distraction, distraction is just the canary in the coal mine, because this tends to be a place where people can't talk about all sorts of problems. And so that's the real issue. So it's, a, it's such an interesting example. And so I want to I wanna
3: give myself culpability here. I am one of the people who brought Slack to my workplace. And not only that, I was so interested in it that I brought like Stuart Butterfield on the show. And, and, and again, like I don't even like this because I like him. I think he's a fascinating, like serious, reflective guy. And yet, like honestly, hearing that story, I, I found myself a little bit infuriated mm. because it's all great to build your culture and have big pink signs saying, um, work hard and go home. But then you've built a product and you're making billions off of a product. That while there are options that could possibly put that kind of culture into play, that is not the way the thing is built by default. And in fact, it's full of ways to make sure people always feel like there's more work to do. I mean, I'll, I'll give like the simplest, smallest example. Like the fact that every time there's a new um, ping, it's in red and everything and every room that has a new word in it is in bold. It's this constant thing where you're staring you're like, oh, my God, there's so much undone. You can make something that makes it easier, visually UX level easier, to not feel like there's always work you're not caught up on. But they didn't do that. And so, you know, you were actually in an article in The Guardian that was about how there are a lot of folks in silicon valley who invented these products who've gotten very very good at not using them um and who have gotten uh, good at sending their kids to private schools where there are no screens and and it's all well and good for folks who are like profiting off of all this to have recognized like deep inside of it the harms but then outside of that like way outside of the circle of people who are not nearly as tech savvy and are not nearly as sort of schooled on it i think that I think there's culpability there that while a book like this I think is really useful you think
2: it's it's the company's responsibility to make products that are less engaging. Do yes. we really want do we really want are we going to shake our fists at Stuart, at Slack and Netflix and these companies and say hey your product is too engaging. Netflix your shows are so interesting I want to watch them all the time. Ezra stop making these podcasts so good that I want to listen to them instead of being with my family. This is ridiculous. Ezra, is it? The price of progress. We want these companies to make products that we want to use. What is the alternative? Please make shitty products that I don't want to use? No. We want products to be engaging.
3: A product doesn't need to be shitty to be not maximizing engagement at every moment. Let me give you an example of this. And 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 we can we can argue it out from there. So you can think of like what my preferences are as a consumer in a couple of ways. It can be like what I do right now or what I want to do. And I think oftentimes we have a tendency to slightly unthinkingly say, particularly around um, products that work in a very, very fast, tight feedback loop like technological products, screen products, that whatever I'm going to do in that instant when you have like flashed a red thing in my face is what I really want to do. See, it's just a great product because it's super engaging. But then there's this question which is leading people like you to write whole books about it. Whole books about how you're ignoring your daughter because you're staring at your phone. Like that wasn't because the phone was so good. It's because on some level the phone is has a wrong view about how you want to live your life. So my point is not we should throw these people in jail. I don't hate Stuart Butterfield or anybody else in this conversation. Everybody's working within the context of the system they have. But I do think that all of us, and by the way, I feel this way in the media too, like we should not only put up the most engaging articles we can, and we don't. We have to do a lot of articles that are not the most engaging because like, we want to be, ultimately, our audience wants to be informed, not just engaged. And so in some ways, I think it's this, it is this effort to make the idea of engagement synonymous with quality. A good product is an engaging product, even though oftentimes... What we want in our lives is separate from what we will do if presented with the choice before us. It's why I keep snack food out of my home. So I don't know. I really I yeah. really question the way you're defining a good product. And I really do think that all of us who run big products, run media organizations, run um, enterprise software, need to think about, are we doing a good job building these products to help people live the lives they want to lead? Or have we somehow found a way to build it that is taking them off of that path? I don't think that's a crazy thing to ask of people in
2: power. I think not only is that a good ethical imperative, it's a good business imperative. People aren't idiots. They're not puppets on a string. If people find over time, as you are, that you are too distracted with this product, if this is not serving you, you're not stupid. You stop using it or you modify what human beings have always done. One of our most amazing traits is that we adapt and we adopt. We adapt our behavior and we adopt new technology to fix the last generation of bad technology. This is what we have always done as a species. So instead of this moral panic, instead of putting blame on everyone else. I think instead of holding your breath, waiting for these companies to change, in which case you're going to suffocate, there are some simple things that we can do right now in order to prevent some of these harms. You know, Paul Varillo, the philosopher said that when you invent the ship, you invent the shipwreck. And I am not a tech apologist. I want you to realize here, there are lots of things the tech industry does that I don't like. I think we need to check out their monopoly status, their use of data, lots of things that they do that I am not in support of, that we should analyze. But when it comes to this particular product, boohoo! these technologies are so good, I wanna engage with them. Come on, this is something we can do something about. And you say, well, isn't that a lot of effort? Isn't that a lot of work? This is an amazing technology. People are listening to my voice right now for free on these micro devices. The cost of this amazing technology, of this world we live in with so many options, is that, you know what? We have to learn some new tactics. I'm asking people to learn how to make sure we can put these things in their place. One other quote I think is so indicative of 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 uh, a truth here. Uh, Kierkegaard said, that anxiety is the dizziness of freedom. And I think that so well encapsulates what we feel right now. We have so many options, so much choice, unlimited articles to read, unlimited videos to to watch, uh, so many websites to learn from that it's a little dizzying. And we are in this adjustment period where we have to learn how to deal with all of this potential distraction. But instead of crossing our arms and saying big bad tech is doing this to us, when it comes to this particular question, we have more agency than most people think. There are some very simple things that we can do to make sure that we put these technologies in their place while still getting the best of them because this idea of well, you know, we're just gonna wait for these companies to change, leaves us flat footed. Why would we wait? Why wouldn't we do things right this minute that can help us have a better relationship with these technologies? So let me agree with part of this and
3: then in our theme disagree with part of it. So one, I think you're obviously right. Um, Solutions for these things operate at different levels simultaneously, and one of them is as individuals trying to figure out, trying to build capacities, trying to create context for ourselves, and and, and using many of the techniques in your book to to, to try to to live a less distracted life and to live a more intentional life. But the other side is I in some ways think you don't follow the, the good argument you made a moment ago far enough so as you said, one thing that tends to happen in our society is things get invented, and those things have excesses, and then through some process, those excesses, hopefully over time, although not always, get get wrung out of the system or pushed back on. But one of the ways they get pushed back on is that people who have a sort of power, either because they're developing things or a sort of influence because they're 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 a voice in something or they're organizing people or whatever it might be, it's because they push back, and and that's why I'm. Sort of uh, like taken aback by the mixture of a book like Indistractable, which is all about like, hey, you and even me like have become way too distracted. Here are a bunch of ways to solve it, and then you're pretty honestly passionate. Uh, like argument here that these are amazing products, and the more engaging they are, the more amazing they seem. There's a there's a, a context we all operate in, and one of the hard things about it is that. I think it is it puts a lot on people to individualize things that are collective or ecosystem oriented. So I may not, you know, one way for me to be like less addicted to Slack and I don't really want to use them as the only example. I don't think they're the worst offender by any means. Um, But one way for me to uh, not feel as, yeah, like hooked into some of these products is to not use them. But if everybody I know is on them or if my workplace is
2: on them, it's actually not my choice. It's a terrific point. When I started exploring the deeper psychology of distraction, I first started with the individual. Right? What can we as individuals do? And that's what the first half of the book is about. It's about these four basic steps of master the internal triggers, make time for traction, hack back external triggers, and prevent distraction with packs. That's what every single one of us can do. And I think this is the skill of the century because, look, if you think the world is distracting now, <laughs> just wait a few years. It's only gonna get more potentially distracting. And so I do think this is a critical macro skill for us to understand, not just for technological distraction, by the way. We we always talk about you know, the newest thing that was invented uh, and that's the source of all of our problems. But of course, there's all kinds of distractions that have, have been with us for a very, very long time. So that's half the book is what you can do for yourself. And that very important to learn those techniques. The other half of the book, as you saw, is about this greater context of how we operate in an environment, right? I can tell you these techniques, and you can implement them, but if your boss, if your editor calls you at 10 p.m. and says, get out of bed because we have to do something right now. You're distracted, right? You're doing something you didn't intend to do. And so that's why it's so important to understand that we do operate in a larger culture. We do operate in a larger environment. But I think the culprit is less the tools and more about the workplace environment. As I said before, distraction is a symptom of a dysfunctional work culture.
3: I'll be back with my guest Nir Ayal right after this.
1: Well,
3: let's talk a bit about this concept of distraction, Um, and let's start actually at the individual level. So you have a part of the book where you talk about the four psychological
2: roots of distraction. Do you want to run through those? Sure. Yeah. So basically the punchline here is that we as a species are not designed for satisfaction. The self-help and the personal development industry tells us that if somehow we are not happy, we are not normal. And nothing could be further from the truth, that in fact, uh, evolution has designed us to never be satisfied. If there was ever a a, a branch of the homo sapien who was satisfied with things, they were killed probably by our ancestors who were not satisfied. So there's this confluence of these four cognitive quirks. Uh, hedonic adaptation, negativity bias, uh, these various cognitive biases that we have that keep us perpetually perturbed, that keep us wanting more. Now – Do you want to say what hedonic adaptation is for people not sure. familiar? Yeah, so hedonic adaptation is uh, this phenomenon that as soon as we have any kind of uh, improvement in our life, we tend to go back down to baseline. So we see this with people who have won the lottery. They're very happy for a little while, and then they're uh, very quickly they go back down to baseline. People who have traumatic events happen to them, right? People who are uh, suddenly confined to a wheelchair. Uh, they feel, they experience a decline in happiness for a while, but then they go back to baseline as well. So hedonic adaptation, keeps us at this, uh, this base level of, of, uh, of happiness, so to speak. And so uh, what that means is that it, this is one of these four factors that keeps us perpetually wanting more and more and more. The other thing you write in this section, which I think is interesting, is in addition
3: to the idea that we are wired to be distracted, it's a distraction is – you sort of frame it as a symptom of another problem that, that you write distraction is not about distraction itself. Rather, it's about how we respond to it. And you you spend a lot of time on the idea of root causes of distraction. And, and one right. way of thinking about that is that the root cause of distraction is evolutionary, but you also have a lot of more tangible here and now root causes of distraction.
2: Um, do you want to talk through some of those as well? Sure, sure. Yeah. So th- this is particularly relevant, I think, when it comes to kids. When you think about the the history of documented parenting. It is littered with examples of myths that we parents, and I include myself in this category, tell ourselves to make ourselves feel better about our kids' crazy behavior. Uh, One of the most pervasive myths, and I know I'm going to get a, a lot of hate mail about this, is this myth of the sugar high doesn't exist, (laughs) that there is no such thing as, uh, you know, this perception that kids act crazy at the birthday party because they just had a lot of sugar. In fact, studies find the only place where you do actually see some kind of effect with a sugar high is on the parents who believe their kids ate sugar even when they had a placebo. It turns out that those parents who believe their kids have a sugar high follow them around. They berate them. They they don't they uh, uh they don't treat them as they otherwise would, and so it turns out that throughout history we have had these moral panics around something, you know manipulating our kids' brains. Uh, when I was growing up, it was video games, Super Mario Brothers, what it was, it was apparently uh, melting our minds, and before that it was television, before that it was radio, and before that it was a comic book, the pinball machine, all of these things, there have been a moral panic around that it somehow these things uh, are, are turning our kids' minds into mush and it their bad behavior. And this is the real reason why this is so important to me. Because when we only look at the proximate cause, television, rock and roll, comic books, we never get to the real issues. And the real issue is today that our kids are in crisis and they are using technology and overusing technology, I should say, as an escape. But we don't ask ourselves, what are they escaping from? And so that's where I talk to many researchers, uh, among them Richard M. Ryan, who's the founder of self-determination theory, this, this well-regarded, well-accepted uh, theory of human motivation. And he believes that uh, what's going on is has to do with what's called the needs displacement hypothesis. That when kids aren't getting what they need in the real world, they go online to fulfill these psychological nutrients, these things that they're not getting offline. And so when we just blame the surface, this is harmful because we don't look for the deeper reason why we're doing what we're doing. Why are kids behaving the way they are? I think this is an important point, not just for kids, but for adults. And, you know, something that
3: I have, i as you can hear in this conversation, um, I've moved sort of far onto the side of a feeling that we are being manipulated, that there is a big problem here. And and so obviously like I try and do a lot in my own life to try to turn myself off from these things. I've left Instagram. I left Facebook. I don't tweet much. I mean, I've like built a built a pretty
2: tried to build as much of a distraction free life as I can. The thing I notice in myself. And is can I that, just chime in there real quick? That's yeah, fantastic, please. by the way. Bravo. That's wonderful. I don't want people to think that I am advocating that you should use these talk- technologies more. No, no, no. If a technology is not serving you, I want you to use it less. That's the whole point of this. I'm not an advocate for any one tool. So bravo to you for doing that. Thank you. I'm wonderful. But, <laughs> but, um,
3: but the, the thing that I notice is I am capable of being present when I'm rested in the mornings, when I um, uh, am calm. But the more tired and in particular, the more agitated I get – the likelier i am to try to tune out the people around me by looking at my phone by jumping onto you know some some app that is going to distract me for a second and as somebody who like thinks a lot about mindfulness and like tries to be aware of like what i'm feeling it often seems to me that the 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 phone is a, a is an escape these things the 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 role they play at least for me is often you don't like what you're feeling right now so you try to escape it and Absolutely before, 10 years ago, 15 years ago, 20 years ago, it was actually a little hard to escape, particularly if you were like in the car with your family or something. Um, now, you always have escape right nearby. And so I, I suspect that what's changed is not always whether or not people needed to escape, but how many opportunities we have for escape. And you talk in the book, um, I think the, the term you use, God, I'm, I'm thinking of a term riding, surfing the wave, but you have another one um, from another kind of mindfulness uh, teacher, I think, but about the feeling of letting of letting a feeling like ride itself out, just like sitting right. with something that is uncomfortable till it till it evaporates. But the thing that we learn to do is that since we don't have to, we then like associate the feeling of like calming that spike of anxiety or boredom or whatever it is with the device, and like that is where we begin to get I think unhealthy and over dependent associations. But there is something about knowing what is what is the preceding emotion or problem for you that is leading you there. Absolutely,
2: Um, for all of us. Absolutely. That this is this is such an important aspect of managing distraction. It's the first step, uh, and this was a real revelation for me because you know I, when I started with this question that uh, intrigued me around this topic of why do we get distracted? Right. This is an age old problem. Socrates and Plato talked about the nature of akrasia, this tendency that we have to do things against our better interest. They talked about this twenty five hundred years ago. Why why do we do this? Right. We know something is bad for us, and yet we do it anyway. Uh, that what I find is that the problem for most folks isn't a knowledge gap. It's not that we don't know what to do. We basically know, right? If you want to be healthy, you have to eat right, you have to exercise, we know that. We don't have to buy a diet book for that. If we want to have healthy relationships, we have to be fully present with the people we care about. If we want to do well at our jobs, we have to do the hard work. We know this stuff. What fascinated me is why don't we do what we know we should do? And so in order to answer that question, I had to start with first principles. I had to start with why do we do anything? What's the nature of human motivation? And many of us think, as I did, that motivation is all about pain and pleasure, right? This is called Freud's pleasure principle, that uh, everything we do is motivated by the desire to pursue pleasure and avoid pain. Turns out that psychologically speaking and neurologically speaking, that's not true. That in fact, what we now know is that it's pain all the way down. That in fact, even the desire for something pleasurable Wanting something that feels good, desire, craving, is psychologically uncomfortable. This is called the homeostatic response, and of course, we feel this physiologically all the time, right? If you feel cold, you put on a jacket. If you're hot, you take it off. If you uh, if you're hungry, right, you feel hunger pangs. You eat. So physiological sensations spur us to action. Physiological discomfort. The same thing applies to psychological discomfort. So when we feel lonely, we check Facebook when we are uh, uncertain, we Google something. If we're bored in the car, like you said, uh, maybe we'll, we'll uh, you shouldn't do this while driving, but you'll check the news, you'll look at uh, sports scores, you'll uh, uh, check, whatever. You make you know, phone calls. Ret- you'll make phone calls, whatever it might be. If you feel that internal trigger, that prompts you to action. Now it can prompt you to which kind of action, either traction or distraction. But the seat of what prompts us to traction or distraction are these internal triggers. These internal triggers are the source of these behaviors. That is to say, that if all behavior is spurred by a desire to escape discomfort, what this means is therefore, that time management is pain management. And that's something I'd never realized before and i hadn't seen written anywhere else that if we are you know we talk about all these life hacks and productivity tricks but fundamentally if we don't control the discomfort we're trying to escape we will always get distracted by something as people have always been and so that has to be the first step
3: but given as you say earlier that we are creatures who are built to be constantly uncomfortable constantly in discomfort i mean you know most of us live in a state of material plenty Unknown at any point in human history. You know, like I don't care how how rich you could have been. Um, I think there are very few people who have access to antibiotics today who would go back to when they didn't, no matter what you gave them, right? And so how in that world do you constantly manage pain? Um it's a it's a it's like a good point, but it's a very, it's a very hard.
2: Yeah. It's a very hard question. Yeah. So there's a simple answer that's hopefully not too simplistic, and it's a mantra I repeat to myself daily, which is that the antidote to impulsiveness is forethought. That by planning ahead, we utilize a gift of our species that no other animal can do on the face of the earth, that we can see the future better than any other animal. And so what we have to do is to plan ahead. The antidote to impulsiveness is forethought. No matter what the algorithms these companies have, no matter what they might throw at us, we have the power to plan ahead. So in the moment, it's too late. If the chocolate cake is on the fork headed to your mouth, too late. You've already lost. You have to act in advance to make sure you don't do the things you don't want to do. One of the things that that gets to is – because I agree with this.
3: um, I always used to love the book – still love the book by Dan Ariely, Predictably Irrational. Uh, which is sort of one of the foundational popular books in behavioral economics. And, and the whole idea is that if you understand when you are going to be irrational, you can predict it. And if you can predict it, you can plan ahead for it. Um, And, and recognizing that that is the way in which, which we can be rational. We are not always rational, but we are sometimes rational. And we can use those moments of sometimes rationality to put in place good structures for ourselves. But one of the reasons I, I push you on this question of having a societal level critique, not just an individual level set of uh, of ideas, is that if the antidote to impulsiveness is forethought, I think the the next sentence there, like the thing that forethought allows you to do is build structures, is to create alternatives, is to create a a, a life um if you have the freedom and the resources to do so where you, where you have more space. Something that I think we see happening is an unexpected version of the digital divide. So, you know, you go back 10 years and the panic was you're going to have all these rich kids with all their screens and their you know, iPads and all, all the rest of it. And poor kids are not going to have access to to broadband Internet and they're not going to have access to tablets and they're going to fall behind in the digital divide. And now it's turning out to be the opposite, where yeah, you have yeah. um, poor kids whose parents can't be around as much because they work double shifts at, at, at their job, or they only have a single parent. Um, they don't have as much access to the outside in the place they live, and they're just spending much more time on screens. Where increasingly, kids of means are in these um, households reading Near Al's book, and you know, only being allowed to play with wooden blocks. And so, I, I worry a bit about the development of like. distraction inequality. This world in which we, like one of, as you say, it's going to be a superpower. It is a superpower to be able to develop and push yourself towards focus. And that is something that has a lot to do with the context in which you live and the freedom that you have. And not everybody has it. And if that's true, like that's going to be a real driver of
2: of social outcomes in the future in in a way that I think should concern us. I couldn't agree more. In fact, I, I I agree that the world is bifurcating into two types of people, uh, people who allow their attention and their lives to be manipulated and controlled by others one of those others is certainly the technology we use and technology will continue to be be more pervasive and more persuasive. That's not a trend that is going to reverse, but also other people in our lives, right? Our bosses telling us what to do, our significant others, our kids. Uh, and so there will be two types of people, people who let their attention and their lives be controlled by others and manipulated by others and people who stand up and say, no, I am indistractable, that I do what I say I'm going to do. I live with intent. And so the solution, you know, you, you can kind of bifurcate into two different solutions. Uh, we can either take the prohibition approach and say, "Well, I know how to use this stuff, but you don't so you know let's legislate it uh, so that you can't use it anymore." or we can say, "How do we increase literacy of how to get the best out of technology without letting it get the best of us And I think that if we are going to continue on this Historical trend, one of the most clear certainties of human existence is that technological innovation improves living standards over time. Uh, We want this to continue. And so what we need to do is I agree with your your, uh, skepticism. I I believe we should look at these technologies and as we look at any uh, potential distraction and ask ourselves, is this something that is serving me or am I serving it? But we don't want that skepticism to turn into cynicism. I think that cynicism can be quite toxic. I think that's fair. It's, so, it's interesting to me because I think that answer kind of like tracks both like where I
3: really agree with you and 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 where I have some uh, disagreement. And, and I just can't, there's something in me and it may track a kind of deep like paternalism or something. I'll, I'll, I'll take the hit on this. Then when I hear it, it's like, there'll be two kinds of people, those who will allow others to and those who won't. And I think I just, I don't believe we have as much um, control as you believe we have. And I mean that for for people who have um, the context of a lot of control, right? I mean, you gave me a nice bravo earlier for all that I've done, but I feel I fail at this all the time. And I have, I think, a pretty unusual level of self-discipline, but not just that. Like, I have a nice backyard. Uh, I live in a place with beautiful weather. Like, I have the means to go do the things I want to do. And and I still and I have like a huge amount of like knowledge and access to people like you. And I, I still felt all the time. But then, you know, you go to somebody who doesn't get to sort of like wander into the backyard, who doesn't live in a safe area, who doesn't, who doesn't, who doesn't, who doesn't have the sort of leverage at their work to structure when they're on and when they're off in the way that I do. Um, and then the idea that it's about them allowing that they can just stand up and decide to be indistractable—it isn't to take all agency away from people. You can be better and worse at this, right? It's a—it's a muscle you can build, but—but um, but I just I worry I think a little bit more than you do that the structure a lot of people are in just telling them to do better, even if they have um, techniques with which to do it. It just it's it's asking more than people can offer. And that's so much of what we see in, in the psychological literature, much of what you quote, it just makes me very skeptical about um, willpower as the answer to this kind
2: of thing. Well, I'm not advocating for willpower. I'll be the first to admit that I have very poor self-control. That's why I do what I do. That's why I wrote this book is that I don't have a a, I'm not a person who has a lot of self-discipline. That's why I need systems. Uh, I need to know how to become indistractable. That's why I wrote the book. Uh, And so the idea here is to increase access, right? I I wrote the book for me because I was struggling with these problems. I felt that I was distracted and I didn't know why. And so I think the solution is access. The, The solution is getting the word out there that uh, we can have both, that we can get the best of these tools without letting it get the best of us. We don't all have to be distracted. What I do want to be careful of is this prohibitionist approach of, well, you know, the common people, they just can't hold their liquor. And so we have to, we have to regulate it. We have to we have to ban it outright. I, I I think that's an impossible answer. We cannot go back. There is no putting this stuff back in the Pandora's box. It's too late. What we have to do is to learn how to live with it. And so the idea is we, we have to learn these tactics. We have to learn the truth about all distraction and how and how doing things that we don't intend to do can be harmful in many forms not just the the technology aspect all right this is a good moment to take a quick break if there's ever a good moment to take a quick break so we'll be right back
1: support for the gray area comes from bombas how's your sock drawer looking these days underwhelming is it the seat of all your disappointments a wasteland of unmatched sandpaper rough foot sleeves Well, this spring you can start looking forward to opening that sock drawer again with Bombas. Finally, I have something to look forward to. Bombas socks have all kinds of features like honeycomb arch support, anti-blister tabs, and cushioned footbeds. Bombas also sells clothes for other body parts like t-shirts and underwear. Also, Bombas wants to make returns and exchanges easy with their 100% happiness guarantee. So if the dryer or anything else eats a sock, or if you're unhappy with your purchase for virtually any reason, they say they'll do whatever they can to replace it or make it right. Bombas sent me a few pairs of socks a while back, and they're my favorite socks. I'm literally wearing a pair right now. I know I'm supposed to say nice things here, but it's true. So there you go. You can get comfy this spring and get back with Bombas. Head over to bombas.com slash gray area and use code gray area for 20% off your first purchase, that's bombascom dot slash gray area and use code gray area at checkout.
2: Support for this show comes from Slack. You're a growing business and you can't afford to slow down. If anything, you could probably use a few more hours in the day. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where
1: work happens.
3: You have a lot of recommendations in the book, and we're not going to be able to cover them all. But what what are three or four of the things that you learned to do or did because of writing this
2: book that have had the biggest impact for you? Yeah, so so I, I will say let me the the nice part about making up a word, as I did uh with a title indistractable, is that you get to define it any way you want. And so indistractable does not mean you never get distracted. It means that you strive to do what you say you're going to do, is that you live with personal integrity. You're as honest to yourself as you are with others. You strive for that. And so the, the I will be the first to admit that I get distracted, by, uh, not just by technology, by my kid interrupting me when I'm in the middle of a work session, uh, by a phone call, by all kinds of things. The idea though is that now I know why. I don't get distracted by the same thing again and again as I used to. Now I can take out this four part model and I can ask myself, where did I go wrong? And so the, you know, the, the, what's important is not as much the tactics but the strategy. Tactics are what we do, strategy is why we do it. And so that's the really important part. So maybe I could just paint a a quick picture here. Yeah, Uh, let's do it. Yeah, so if you think about a a, a big uh, plus mark, okay, like almost like the four points of a compass and a plus mark in the middle. The horizontal axis, you can put traction on the right and distraction on the left. So you got traction and distraction, those are opposites. Traction is everything you do that's what you plan to do, what you do with intent. Distraction is the opposite, anything that is not traction. Now, the vertical axis, think of two arrows pointing in to the middle of the plus mark. Now, these represent internal triggers and external triggers. We talked about these internal triggers, these uncomfortable emotional states that prompt us to traction or distraction. Now, there are also the external triggers, the pings, dings, rings, and things that prompt us towards traction and distraction. Now, they're not all evil. If an external trigger prompts you to do something you wanted to do, well, then that's moving you towards traction. If you get a notification on your phone that says, "Hey, it's time to work out," or "It's time for that meeting," or whatever it is you plan to do, that's traction. But if you were sitting with your your daughter, as I was, and your phone pings you, and you plan to be with her, and now you're checking Instagram, well, that's a distraction. So what we can do is essentially work through these four strategies. So at the top, at the you know the north part of the plus mark, you've got Mastering your internal triggers is really figuring out what is the source of the discomfort and either fix the source of the problem or learn tactics to cope with it. And so we talked about a little bit about how we can fix the source of the discomfort, so that's why you know it is about your corporate culture we talked about earlier. It's about helping your kids on understanding the deeper reasons why your kids are overusing technology. That's the source of the problem. Or we can learn methods to cope with the discomfort. Not every pain we can extinguish. That's part of just being alive, is that you're going to have discomfort in your life, but we can deal with that discomfort in a more healthy manner. And so there's, there's a few strategies for how to do that. And then if we go to the east side, so the, the, the a part of the horizontal axis that points to the right, you have traction. And here what we wanna do is to make time for traction. The fact is that, that this day and age, if you don't plan your day, someone else will. And what I found in in the research I did is that for the vast majority of people, we don't guard our time. We let anybody interrupt us whenever they want, particularly when it comes to these technologies. We use them on somebody else's schedule, right? Whenever, whenever uh, we get a ping or ding, we, we, we use these technologies as opposed to planning our day. Now this uses some very old, very well-established research called setting an implementation intention, which is just a fancy way of saying, planning out what you're going to do and when you're going to do it. So the, the, the mantra I want, I want folks to remember is that you can't call something a distraction unless you know what it distracted you from. You know, when I was doing the research for this book, I would talk to a lot of folks and they'd tell me how distracting the world was and how Twitter did this and Instagram this and their boss asked them for that, they couldn't get anything done. But when I asked them, you know, can I see what it was that you planned to do today? What did did you get distracted from exactly? They take out their phone kind of sheepishly and they'd they'd show me their calendar app and, and unfortunately nine times out of 10, it was blank there's nothing on it. So we have to start planning our day. We have to decide what it is we want to do with our time in order to know the difference between traction and distraction. So there's a lot more there around synchronizing our schedules, a lot more there, but that's the big, the high level
3: theory. So it, I, I actually like where you you ended that because that's something that I have struggled with. So mm. I've read and I'm, I'm a, uh, Consumer of lots of productivity literature, uh, <laughs> particularly was when I when I um, was in EIC and was worried about my schedule all the time, and still I'm worried about my schedule all the time to be honest. And as you say, a very common answer there is well plan everything out. And so I really would, you know, I'd like have these like bricks of writing time and this and that, and you know, every every part of my day would be would be planned. And one of the things I noticed in that is that one thing that doing that does is it really orients you towards discrete tasks as opposed to space, um, space where you might think or read a book or, now, of course, you can try to put on your calendar, like thinking time or book reading time or whatever, but I do find that when you're dealing with a task list of any kind, be it a calendar or a to-do list or anything, it's just it's pushed towards a little discrete tasks. And a lot of, I think, important creative work, associations, etc., cetera, they come out of things that are a lot less tangible than that. And so one of the things that I, I found myself getting into, and, and I wouldn't be surprised if I, and I've heard other people say it's happened to them too, is you end up ping-ponging between these, these two conditions. One is you're a little bit over-scheduled. You're, you're trying to be too tight on your schedule in order to wall it off from distraction. Then the other is that you're distracted, time that might have been a little quiet before or you would have read a book or do something like that. You end up scrolling around on your phone. So I'm not saying it's not better, but I'm, I'm curious how you think about that difference between – I think the calendar can have a tendency to to – drive you towards urgent, discrete work as opposed to fuzzier, but also important work.
2: And I think a lot of us suffer from not having enough just slack in our own systems. Absolutely. And I think, you know, the, the principle we want to follow here is to turn our values into time. That we we talk a good game, or at least I say I, I talked a good game. If you ask me, okay, what's important to you? Well, my family, my friends, my health, all of these things were important to me. But they weren't on my schedule. They weren't on my calendar, and so I would say, "Oh yeah, I'll, I'll make time to uh, read a book. Sure, that that's going to happen." Of course, it never did. I'll, I'll make time to journal. I'll make time to be with my friends, and it didn't. And I, I think that's part of our loneliness epidemic that we're suffering through in this country. Is that I think as you see fewer folks attending uh, church, attending synagogue, attending civic organizations, and this is a long time coming. Social media did not. Uh, do this, right? Robert Putnam talked about this in the late 90s in bowling alone. This is a long time coming trend, but the decline of social institutions, that, that gave us a structure of, oh, I go bowling every Tuesday and Thursday with my buddies. This is going to happen. I go to church every Sunday. The less that happens, we are suffering for it, so we need to have time in our calendars to connect with friends, to be with our loved ones, to read a book. And again, I don't care what it is you do with your time. If you want time in your day to stare into space, do it. But if you don't put that time in your calendar in this day and age, somebody's going to take that time away from you. Whether it's your cell phone, your boss, your kids, somebody's going to eat up that time unless you claim it for what you want to do.
3: Let me ask you about distraction as a social economic problem as opposed to an individual problem. One of the – I don't want to call it a mystery, but one of the puzzles of this era is people have the impression that we're living through an extraordinary age of technological progress. I mean everything – the way we spend our time, what we look at, the world around us, it really is different than it was 15 years ago. Um, smartphones have transformed social relations. And, you know, its you can't look around and think we're, we're, we're not inventing things that people are using. And on the other hand, productivity has slowed down oh, compared to the couple decades before this. And one theory of this I've heard is that these technologies have become distracting as opposed to productivity enhancing. That one reason we're not seeing the gains you would expect from as much technological progress as we perceive is that instead of It helping us get traction or be intentional, do the things we intend to do and do them better, it ends up distracting us in equal measure from the things we intend to do. It kind of helps us with one hand and takes away with the other. Google makes me faster as a journalist. I don't have to, like, go microfiche stuff, but also I spend a lot
2: of time, you know, down weird rabbit holes on the Internet. I'm curious if you buy that argument. You know, it's it's interesting. You mentioned that piece of research. I actually wanted to start my whole book with that research because it makes such a great case for why this is an important thing to to worry about. Uh, unfortunately, the research is just not very good. I didn't include the study because it's it's just inconclusive. There's so many potential factors that could be contributing to the slowdown in productivity growth. It's not slowdown in productivity it's slowdown in productivity growth. Uh, probably the most likely theory is that all the low hanging fruit is is already been eaten uh, that's probably what happened. We just had a, a period of very high growth, and so now it's uh, there's less opportunities uh, for that it's like the Robert Gordon theory. Yeah, so I, I did include it because it was just I, – I couldn't make heads of tails. No, I, I, of I was saying the second one,
3: yeah. I, I agree. I don't think this this distraction is a productivity problem. It's like a proven. It's a theory. But Robert Gordon is sort of the one who says we used to have better inventions than we do now. His book right, is for people right. who haven't read it, I think,
2: really great. So, so I I think that being said – we don't have to look at a societal level to see that there's a problem. <laughs> when, when I was interviewing folks for this book and I would ask knowledge workers, you know, is focus even important to you? Do you need time to think in your day? Uh, and everybody told me, absolutely, I cannot solve difficult problems without time to think. And yet when I asked folks, well, where's that time in your calendar? There's no time. Their entire day is spent reacting and there's no time for reflecting. And that's a big problem. <laughs> we need time to think in our day. I mean, you, you need, I mean, for me, it's writing. Writing is how I think through problems, not just you know, what I publish, of course, but you know, I write just to think through what's going on in my head and it's incredibly productive time. For other people, it might be uh, just having time to, to meditate, time to reflect, time to pray. That time as well needs to be on our calendars and needs to be on our schedule. And that's part of traction deciding for yourself what it is you want to do but if we just go through our day-to-day lives without being intentional about those things we want to do no way we'll get them done no way it's going to happen and so I think that's why we're spinning our wheels many times you know reacting to meetings and emails and not giving our times any um, ourselves any time to actually reflect on these problems
3: how is scheduling um, so much of your social and kind of relational time uh, changed it, if it has. So you, you talk in the book about scheduling dates, which I think people are familiar with, but also scheduling time with your daughter um, and, and of course, scheduling time with your friends. And I'm curious how—I think people sometimes have an instinct that if they're—things like that should be organic, they should be atmospheric. You shouldn't have to schedule it. If you schedule it, you're taking some of the like the magic and love out of it. If it's just an appointment, well, then isn't it like all
2: your other appointments? Do you, do you feel that it changes the nature of them at all, or, or how has that affected it? To me, it's made them a lot better. I'll give you one example of what we do with our friends. Uh, at least we used to. Unfortunately, we, uh, we, we had to stop this practice because we moved to New York, so our, our friend network didn't come with us. But we had this practice of a kibbutz. And uh, kibbutz, we just used the word. Uh, it's, in Hebrew, it means gathering. And we scheduled every two weeks in perpetuity, forever and ever, these, these uh, two weeks with uh, these meetings where we would get together uh, with four couples same time, same place. Everybody brings their their same their food for themselves. So there was no planning involved. You would know that you would show up with your you know, food for your family. Kids could come too, and we would go around with these these other couples, and everyone would be assigned a topic, right? So it was almost like a, a TED Talk therapy session discussion type type thing where we would plan in that kibbutz time so that we could. Bond, so that we could get closer to each other. And in fact, you know, of course we put away our devices. That was the easy, obvious distractions that we wanted to avoid, but we also avoided the distraction of our kids. So I remember one time, uh, one of uh, one of my friends in this group was was starting to kind of tell us about what was going on at work, and the, uh, he was becoming he was uh, being becoming very vulnerable and then telling us about his struggles. And then a kid comes up and says, oh, "I need a juice box," and interrupts the conversation. That was a distraction. So we actually made a rule that look, unless someone is bleeding, don't interrupt the conversation, because we thought it was very important to model out for our kids what an adult conversation and adult friendship looks like. We wanted to show them that we were prioritizing these people that we care about in our lives. And that happened on a regular basis. It was, there was no planning involved. It was always going to happen, same time, same place. And so I do that in many aspects of my life now because if you don't, you default to the low quality stuff. I I had a conversation with a, a friend of mine the other day about how nobody really enjoys clubbing. All that much. I, I now I'm I'm older. I'm in my forties. But I remember, you know, the only people who enjoy the only way to enjoy a nightclub, really, at least for me, was to be drunk. Right? That's the only way I could enjoy it because it's miserable. It's it's uh, smelly and it's dark and it's too loud. You can't actually have a conversation. And if we don't plan ahead, that's kind of what we default to. These options, where all we can do to feel somewhat comfortable is to drink and do the, and, and which is itself, you know, a classic distraction to get out of our heads, so that we can better enjoy the the, the situation. Not that there's again, not that there's anything wrong with it. I enjoy getting tipsy once in a while at a cocktail party too. But if that's the only way we can stand a social situation, we may want to explore that further. I was like, huh? Like, how do I enjoy nightclubs? Um, although
3: I probably would need to do more, more personal searching about that question. Um,
2: <laughs> it's kind of true, isn't it? Though I mean, I don't know. It, maybe, maybe I'm unique. No. Here. Well,
3: to be honest, the thing that made me think is like. Yeah, but I really like getting drunk and going to a club. <laughs>
2: yeah, yeah, um, and <laughs> which I, is which is great. Which is there's nothing wrong with doing that. Of course, there's no moral judgment. Because there. it's a it's but a weird that's...
3: thing. Letting go is, I think, a nice thing, and it's hard to do in normal life. Like I don't. I. It's Absolutely. completely true that nightclubs are a place. Like I do not like to be sober, but I also do like to go see shows and dance.
2: So we'll say, totally. Totally. And and this is why it's so important. Because look, do some people go overboard? Do some are some? Do some people have a problem with this? Of course, they harm themselves uh, to a degree where this is too much, and so that's why it's important to ask ourselves to do these things with intent. If you enjoy going out and getting tipsy, that's great, that's wonderful. But if it's controlling you, if you can't, if you have no other outlet, then that comes at a cost. And so when it comes to our social lives, for example, this is an area where we might want to ask ourselves: you know, if, is that all we do to bond with people are there other uh you know areas in our life where we can get that need met you know we to connect with people that's not something we can just do at a nightclub to to understand others and be understood we need that time with others with our community with our relationships let me ask you about one more thing which is so there's the idea of distraction as a context right
3: are you in a are you in a distracting context can you set up a better context for yourself and there's that all the idea of attention is a muscle Um, You've sort of put traction as the opposite of distraction, which I think makes sense. But there's also this idea of attention as the opposite of distraction. Um, And some of the practices you talk about and certainly some practices other people talk about frame things in terms of is what you're doing building your attentional capacity, your ability to focus on something. People bring up things like mindfulness. But on the other hand, they'll bring up things like not checking your phone when you have less than a couple seconds. You have a nice practice in the book about if you want to check something Telling yourself, okay, in ten minutes I can, and then it's like, do you still want to in ten minutes? And the idea that you're not then kind of teaching yourself to have that instant moment of gratification. I'm I'm curious both whether or not you feel that your attentional capacity is increased by implementing a lot of this stuff. And I guess um, b- around that, do you think of that as a as a reasonable model that people should be be implementing? Like, does this increase my
2: attention or decrease it? So you're definitely training yourself to satiate discomfort based on what you do with that discomfort. So the more you respond to boredom by looking at your phone, you are habituating yourself. It doesn't mean, you know, people say, oh, it's changing your brain. Well, everything changes the brain. Learning the piano changes the brain. There's nothing special about that particular uh, habitual response. However, we do want to consider if that habit is serving you or if it's serving the tech companies. So it's not that you can't change that habitual response, but certainly, you know, any uh, stimulus response uh, sequence that provides relief to that emotional discomfort can become a habit over time i mean that's that's what all products do all products connect themselves to a discomfort in the user's mind and relief from using that product i think that's a good place to to bring it to a close let me ask you the question we always use to, to end the podcast which is what are three books that have influenced you that you would recommend to the audience Sure. So I'll give you uh, fiction, nonfiction, and a piece of research. Uh, the the nonfiction book that I, I highly recommend is Lost Connections by Johan Hari. Uh, it's, Previous it's a guest on the show, actually. Oh, he's been on the show. Okay, terrific. Yeah, I, people I, should I, check out that episode. Wonderful, wonderful author. I, I love you know. He talks about how the the opposite of uh, addiction is not sobriety; it's connection. And I think that's that's uh, really, really insightful. So I, I love that book. It, it it's a very well informed view of addiction that has nothing has. It tries to leave behind this. This mythology that addiction is caused by these products and not uh, without considering the other aspects of what really causes addiction, the pain, the person as well. Uh, in terms of uh, a piece of, of research that I think has highly influenced me and, and my writing is uh, the work of uh, Desi and Ryan on self-determination theory. It's not a book, but it's a highly influential piece of research. Uh, a great book on the topic is Drive by Daniel Pink. Uh, this is kind of the backbone of w- uh, what I use to, to really explain what's happening with our kids, what really explains the the, the overuse of technology among kids uh, it, with this needs displacement hypothesis, that they are looking for these psychological nutrients that, of course, the tech companies are very happy to provide, but it's because they're not getting those psychological nutrients met in the real world. and then. Fiction, I would recommend Moby Dick. Uh, I think it's 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 such an apt portrayal of uh, of of obsession, uh, of perhaps an addiction, of distraction. Uh, there's a lot of themes there that repeat in that uh, great American novel.
3: Nirel, thank you very much. My pleasure. Thank you. Thank you to Nirel for being here. Thank you to Cynthia Gill for engineering, to Jeffrey Geld for producing, to Rajay Karma for researching. The Ezra Klein Show is a Vox Media Podcast Production.